Let's stand together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 20, Sunday morning, studying the books of, book of Acts together. And we come now to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you're with us, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and wave to them, and they'll bring a Bible to you and put it in your hands. It'll be marked right to our passage, and that way you can study and see what it is that I'm talking about with your own eyes as, long, as well as listening. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you today. Acts chapter 20, we pick things up in verse 13. And then we, that is Luke and Paul and Silas and the whole team, went ahead to the ship uh, at Troas and sailed to Assos, and there intending to take Paul on board, uh, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when we, he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to uh, Mytilene. And we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. Uh, the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not uh, have to spend time there in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the very first day that I came to Asia, to Ephesus, and what manner I live, always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept nothing back that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to, the, to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more, and therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That constitutes the first half of his uh, sermon to these church leaders, and we will only get through a very small portion of the first half this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word, and again, as we come uh, to this passage, a sermon by Paul uh, toward leadership within a church and the things that are on his heart, and, and uh, for you to put this in, and uh, after what went on in Troas and all of the other broad diversity of, of things that we're learning from the early church, and, and we're thankful for every bit of it. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us as leaders in this church and as members of this church to uh, hear your voice and your instruction in light of the world that we live in and that we serve you in, that we might be well instructed for your call upon each of our lives. Lord, there's so many traps on the left and on the right. There's so many theories, so many ideas that abound, and they're always floating around, not just in the world, but within the church, the church as a whole. And they end up being just a massive waste of time for hundreds and millions of people. We want to spend our lives, Lord, where it's really going to count, where it's really going to make a difference, Lord, where we really are uh, cooperating with you and your headship in all of this. And so teach us and instruct us concerning these things today, we pray. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to this church this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
The Apostle Paul is now very near the end of his third missionary journey, and the travelogue is included there in uh, verses 14 through 16. He is making his way uh, to Jerusalem with an offering from the Gentile churches that he has established in the hopes that it will be a blessing to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are uh, were currently in great need. After his all-night meeting there with the church in Troas, uh, he is, uh, he, the other nine men who were accompanying him at this point in time, uh, they sailed to the city of Assos, but Paul, and, and Luke makes note of it, decided not to travel there by way of ship. He separated himself from the other nine men, and he proceeded to walk the 20 miles uh, from Troas to Assos. Obviously, he's wanting time uh, to be alone. He's processing a lot in his life at the moment. He is concerned about what kind of persecution is going to uh, come against him in Jerusalem. He's processing through what happened the night before in Troas, the preaching and the fellowship and uh, God's use of him to raise uh, the young man, Eutychus, from the dead. But he's also got on his mind this desired meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus and what it is that is important in his mind to be able to say to, to them. And I have no doubt he was kind of uh, putting his thoughts in kind of a coherent order in, in terms of of declaring those things to him. And so he walks. I don't know how many of you, I assume that it's many of us in this room, that we do our very clearest thinking uh, when we are walking. And uh, perhaps that was true of Paul as well. Well, from Assos, the entire group, as Paul meets with them uh, there after several uh, stops along the way, as is listed in what we read, uh, so often it amuses me, though. People look and they say, well, the Bible is just so full of, uh, it's just all full of fables. <laughs> and then you look at how uh, detailed it is. It gives all of the ports, all of the cities, the timing, the names of the people, all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the book has no intention of being uh, a book of fables. I mean, it's a, it's, it is a, uh, the record of, uh, of, uh, of human history. And so they come after several stops to the city of Miletus, and uh, Paul uh, then sends messengers to Ephesus that the leaders of the church there would meet him at Miletus, a distance of about 36 miles, 20 miles as the crow uh, flies, but 36 miles on the ground that they would come and meet him. He seemed to have a sense he is in a hurry to get to uh, Jerusalem in time of, for the Feast of Pentecost. And he feels like if he goes into Ephesus, he's so beloved there that it would be hard once again for him to break away from them. So he has the elders uh, come to, uh, uh, to him. And, uh, and, and so upon getting this message from Paul, the elders of the church in Ephesus, they traveled the 36 miles on foot in order to meet with him in Miletus. The group that, uh, of these leaders is probably a pretty significant number um, based upon how long and how effectively Paul preached in Ephesus and the gospel affecting a very large city and then also affecting the entire surrounding region. Uh, the church there numbered for certainly in the multiplied hundreds, uh, if not in the thousands, uh, because of the impact that it was having. And so these would be the leaders, a significant number of leaders leading churches who were meeting in buildings, they were meeting for the most part in homes at that point in, in church, uh, church history. And so uh, there's the message given to them, the invitation. I have no doubt that they, each of them came very, very eagerly to meet with Paul. Most of them had been saved under his ministry, and probably all of them were leaders as a result of his, his training and his uh, discipleship. Now, in this section, we have the only recorded sermon uh, in the book of Acts that is addressed to Christians. It's the only one addressed to Christians. And Paul was operating as he delivers this sermon to these Ephesian elders under the idea that he is never going to see them again. 
uh, and uh, that was his uh, personal conviction, that this was the last time. And so this adds an urgency to what it is that he's going uh, to speak to them. Here he has been uh, uh, declaring to them this relationship with them. He's never going to see them again in his own mind. And so he gave them the very best encouragement, the very best exhortation that he uh, could come to his heart out of his long years of ministry and Christian service in order to uh, educate them in what is necessary to be effective as a leader in a local church and how to be biblical as a leader in a local church and specifically to oversee it uh, here, the church at Ephesus. So I think here you have probably the single greatest uh, leader or minister uh, in the history of Christianity. Jesus is in his own category. But here he is about to speak on to other leaders about what it means to serve the Lord. And this is so valuable to all of us that the Holy Spirit allows us to eavesdrop it, he, uh, on it. He records it for us in the Scriptures because the message is not just important for them but also important for us. And what he speaks to us here is invaluable. And I think not only for leaders within a church but also for every Christian who is a member of any Christian church because what it does is it helps us to all be on the same page in terms of what a church is supposed to be. I think that increasingly in our day, there's this idea that you can just make the church into any old thing you want, and that it's okay, that you can emphasize anything you want and de-emphasize anything you want, and all of that is perfectly okay with God. And uh, here is some instruction that corrects those kind of uh, ideas about the church and, and helps us to understand uniformly what a local church is supposed to be so that we all have the same expectations. It's a, it not going to be a good dynamic if a congregation has one ex expectation of a church and the leadership has a different expectation of a church. Uh, they're going to be in conflict if that happens. So each group has to be, have an expectation of church and what occurs there and what the priorities are so that we all remain uh, on the same page. And those expectations need to be biblical. Um, I don't think that this whole issue is, uh, in terms of expectations, is an insignificant uh, matter because in my observation and in my uh, opinion, and that's a qualifying statement, by the way, uh, within Christianity in the United States and Christianity and what the church is supposed to be is being completely redef redefined at the moment. And it is, it is being completely redefined in a very, very short window of time. There have always been trends in churches and in the church in the United States of America. They're always going on. But the change that is occurring today is explosive. And in my mind... Uh, spiritually very dangerous on, on a couple of uh, specific uh, regarding a, a couple of ways specifically and it isn't so much how uh, things are changing in terms of how the church expresses itself in terms of of the forms that some public worship services are taking though it includes that a, a little bit on some level but what is even more concerning to me is what is at the root uh, of so much of this, uh, the drift that I see uh, from the ministry heart that the Apostle Paul describes as characterizing his heart 
in ministry here, and then he considers it to be valuable enough, indeed necessary enough, that he then communicates that, sows it into the hearts of these uh, other uh, leaders. Because if our heart and our motive are wrong, then everything else that is birthed out of that heart and out of those motives is going to be wrong as well. In my opinion, there is a very strong and very unhealthy conforming pressure today upon every church and upon every Christian today to move away from what Paul describes here in this passage. And what we have to do as Christians is to be aware of the push and then to understand why we ought to push back and then to push back on it as firmly as it's endeavoring uh, to push uh, and press upon us. I think the problem is so serious that without repentance or without a true revival, that the kind of church and leaders that Paul describes uh, here uh, are going to be completely marginalized in this current uh, atmosphere, uh, and they'll be marginalized as a the proper example of a New Testament church uh, in this culture. Now, Paul begins his self-description of his ministry to them in verse uh, 18. Think about how valuable this is. We're about to hear about Christian ministry from Paul's perspective. That is priceless to us. And if we had to pay for it, we would spend an enormous sum to be able to uh, get his mind and his heart on these issues, and yet here it is uh, free for us right on the pages of our, our Bibles. When he talks about uh, ministry, he began by speaking of his manner of life, verse 18. He declares there, and when they had come to him and he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, and including Ephesus, in what manner I always lived among you. And so he talks about his manner of life, that is his example. And he declares himself to them that his life was an example of Christianity and that it was an example that other Christians could follow and follow safely. He didn't begin his instruction to these leaders concerning how to outline a Bible study or how to be an effective public speaker or how to administrate or to organize a church or how to grow a big church or how to have a dynamic ministry. He begins rather by emphasizing the importance in a leader, indeed in everyone, but a leader of being an example of what we believe, the importance of what we would call today personal integrity, that there be no hypocrisy, no masks, no secret sins, no double life, that what people see is what they get. And what they see in one environment, if they were to be with us in any other environment, they would see that very same person. And the Apostle Paul, he lived a life that was consistent with the message that he declared. And without that kind of personal integrity in a leader and in the leadership of a church, that church will ultimately collapse. Uh, it will ultimately fail even if everything else is right because this is foundational and this is why he begins there. And notice the degree uh, to which he took this, uh, the importance of his own personal uh, integrity in Ephesus in verse 18. He declares, from the first... Notice that phrase in the verse. He then declares, always. And then he declares, and you know, and they did know. If we are to be mature and to be serious about ministry, we must possess 
the consciousness that Paul had, and that is that our lives are being watched. And then to realize that this is not a terrible thing for us as leaders or as Christians, but that this is a uh, wonderful thing. And then to go beyond the knowledge of the fact that we are being watched to then recognizing the truth of it, to be very deliberate and very intentional about what people then see in and through our lives. Now, occasionally through the years, I have heard uh, ministers complain about the hardship of uh, living in the fishbowl of ministry, and ministry is a fishbowl uh, existence. But Paul here didn't view that as a negative. Paul viewed it as a good thing, and he viewed it as something that we ought to embrace as an opportunity and an opportunity to provide people then with uh, the ability to see a living epistle through our lives of what a Christian is. And Paul realized that we earn the right to be heard by other people, not on the basis of a title we have or a position that we hold, even within a church, but we do so by our manner of life, by our example. And of course, this isn't just true of pastors or elders or deacons within a church. It's true of all Christians. Every single one of us lives within a fishbowl. Before I started walking with the Lord, and uh, I would, uh, you know, carefully watch anybody that uh, declared themselves within my presence to be a Christian or identified them uh, as a Christian. I would uh, watch them. I watched their lives. I listened to what came out of their mouths. I came to conclusions about Christianity as a result of it. I came to conclusions about their relationship with God. I came to conclusions about the health of the church that they uh, said that they attended. Not fair, but that's exactly what I did, and that's what people do in our lives uh, as well. Uh, if they if they didn't know that they were in a fishbowl uh, as a Christian, I certainly knew it as someone who wasn't walking with the Lord. And then when I started to come to church, coming to Calvary Chapel in Napa as an adult, I would watch the ushers, I would watch the greeters, uh, I would watch all of the guys that re received the offering, I would watch all of the worship leaders and so forth, and in my ignorance, I thought all of them were pastors. And, and I would watch them to say, this is someone I can look at for learning how to conduct myself as a Christian. And so when we serve the Lord in a local church in any of the more public ways that I've described here, it's very, very important for us to realize that people don't just watch us at church. They watch us everywhere that they see us, in any grocery store, any kind of a restaurant, or a driving. There's a one that will make you think, won't it? And, uh, but they watch not everyone. Some people are highly critical, but most people watch with the desire to see a different kind of life, to learn something about uh, what it means to be a Christian. Being watched this way is not a curse. Paul didn't consider it a curse, but an honor and one more way that we have to uh, bring glory to God. All in line with what Jesus said when he said, let your light so shine before men that when they see, not if, when they see your good works, uh, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, in this regard, I think it's a great mistake that many of the churches that are led usually by young men and attended in large part by younger uh, Christians today to focus so heavily on their exercise of their Christian liberties in terms of their drinking or in terms of their partying or in terms of uh, their movie choices and their entertainment choices 
and to glom onto these things as they uh, do with the idea that this is a meaningful way uh, to reach and to impact the culture for God, as opposed to uh, what I think are the tried and true things that the Apostle Paul goes on to list here in his sermon uh, as what he saw, uh, the uh, leaders in Ephesus saw in him that had impacted them so much. And what does Paul speak about here? He doesn't speak about alcohol. He doesn't speak about watching R-rated movies. He doesn't speak about uh, parties. He speaks about things like his manner of life. This is serious business to be a leader in a church. He speaks about his manner of life, his absolute surrender to God and to God's will for his life. He speaks about his humility, his perseverance in his calling through seasons of tears and seasons of trials. He speaks about his commitment to the teaching of the Word of God. And I hope that this current ministry model that is not disappearing but is growing, I hope it is a fad and I hope it is a fad that is soon going to come to an end. Because to me, it's just childish and immature, and it is dangerous. Because if it isn't a fad, and it becomes normative in leadership, instead, uh, instead of what the kind of things that Paul lists here and produce sobriety, then all of us are in real trouble. And I would encourage further, every young person within the sound of my voice, whatever vehicle that might be, to steer completely clear of all of this and to choose instead the higher standard that the Apostle Paul set for his life concerning Christian liberties, which he spoke of to the very liberty intoxicated and carnal church at Corinth in an effort to raise their thinking in this regard. And concerning liberties, this is what Paul declared concerning himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but all things, not all things, are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And the translation of that is that Paul purposely set a standard for what he allowed into his life that was higher than the liberties that he possessed as a Christian. If it wasn't helpful, that is, it didn't help him grow spiritually and in his relationship with God and to grow in God's call upon his life, then out it went. If anything had even the slightest possibility of bringing him under its power to enslave him in any way, out it went. If it did not build him up spiritually, out it went. And then when you speak of something like this today, you look at it and say, that's very, very strict. Absolutely. It is very, very strict. But I don't think that any Christian who chooses to follow Paul in setting these same standards for our own lives will ever regret it. Because I know for a fact that there is a well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord from the lips of Jesus on the end of that path. And no Christian's life will ever be considered having been lived successfully that does not not only get into heaven, but does not hear those words from the mouth of Jesus. 
I am not as confident that all of this current liberties-obsessed Christianity that is all around us ultimately ends up being praised and affirmed by Jesus in the same way. And personally, I am so grateful for the three men of God who have most impacted my life, not talking about uh, those that are in this church that have done so or on this staff who have done so, but outside of these environments, Chuck Smith, Gail Irwin, Bill McDonald, who challenged me, not with their lips, but they challenged me with their lives to reach high in terms of my Christian witness and my definitions of Christian maturity. And I am not at all convinced that carnality, uh, that is, being a Christian but still dominated by the flesh and still obsessed with the things that feed the flesh is the great advertisement for Christianity that we're being told that it is or that it holds so great a appeal to people who finally wake up one morning and decide, I want out of the kingdom of darkness and I want to enter into a kingdom of light. It is a very, very serious thing for a church and its leaders to claim to represent this infinitely great God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And like the Apostle Paul, I think we do well to have a sober, mature understanding of the fact that we're being watched and who, as a result, are determined and we are intentional that people see in us Christian maturity, true Christian maturity, as we see it in Paul and as he describes it here. Now, the second thing that Paul brings to their attention is that he served the Lord, verse 19. And when they had come, verse 18, uh, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humanity. And this phrase, serving the Lord, is a very interesting one because Paul is revealing two things to them, which they would have understood immediately, but we don't necessarily in terms of the translation and the language. He's revealing two things to them and us at the same time. First, he is revealing his attitude toward himself in Christian ministry. And then second, that his motivation for his Christian service was to serve the Lord supremely. Yes, he served people in serving the Lord, but his primary motivation was to please the Lord as his master. Now, let's take uh, uh, each of those things one at a time, and this will constitute as far as we get uh, this morning. When Paul wrote in verse 19 that he served the Lord, uh, that word that he uses to describe his service is an interesting one. It is a variation of the Greek word doulos. And the Apostle Paul began many of his epistles declaring himself to be a doulos, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And when you see that bondservant or you see that slave in his uh, opening uh, uh, benedictions of his epistles, he is using the Greek word doulos. The word has an Old Testament origin, and it is found in terms of its origination in Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, verses 16 through 17. I'll describe it to you uh, without needing to turn to it where the Lord gives to, to Moses what is the law concerning bondservants. 
If you had, you were a Hebrew, and a fellow Hebrew, whether a neighbor or a family member, were to come into arrears, they owed you money, and uh, of necessity, uh, to cut out from under the debt would need to become your slave uh, or your servant for a number of years to work off that debt. When you, a, uh, a fellow Hebrew uh, became a slave in that kind of a circumstance, another Hebrew could only keep them as a slave for a maximum of six years. At the end of uh, the, 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 seven years, uh, they were then to be set free. But after the six years, if in the seventh year, the Hebrew servant had come to love his, that family so much, how they had treated him, and looked and said, if I got released from being a servant in this position with this family and went out into the world, I couldn't have it any better than I have it with them. He could then approach that family and he would... and. And out of his desire to remain a servant uh, forever, he could approach them and request that he would become a doulos, a bondservant. And the ceremony went something like this. A slave would say that to his Hebrew master. The desire would be made known. The Hebrew master would then take the slave to the wooden doorway of the house put the slave's earlobe up against the wood, and then push an all through his earlobe, and that marked him now as a doulos. And the three characteristics of a bond slave, of a doulos, is number one, the commitment was voluntary. And then number two, their motivation was a love for the master. He did it in response to how good the master had been to him. And then number three, the term of the commitment was forever. And this is the title that the Apostle Paul took to himself to describe the quality of his commitment to serve the Lord and the Lord's call upon his life. And so when he writes in his letters uh, to the Romans, to the Galatians, to the Philippians, and he describes himself as Paul, a servant, that is, a bond slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ, he is communicating that to his readers, to us, that concerning his commitment to God's call upon his life, that it was voluntary. He didn't do it grudgingly or feel like he had to do it. Number two, he did it out of a motivation of love for Jesus. He realized there is no place else in the world that can offer me a greater experience, as hard as it might oftentimes be, than to be this man, this God-man's uh, servant. And he did it forever. Uh, that is, the Lord has been so good to me that I choose to be his servant all the rest of my life. And what Paul is doing here is very interesting because he is now calling upon these Ephesian elders to follow his example in making that very same commitment uh, to the Lord in their area of service as well, that they were to become douloses and voluntarily motivated by love and settle the issue, it is to be forever. And this is how the Apostle Paul viewed himself and considered this kind of a designation to be something commendable in a leader in the church. And it is the attitude that God wants me uh, to, to uh, do the same thing as well. The realization that I am, as a leader in a church, I am not too good to do anything the master tells me to do. I am a son in this relationship, but in ministry I am a slave in this relationship. It doesn't matter 
If I am the CEO of a Fortune 500 company during the week, and God calls me to vacuum the carpet in the sanctuary after the morning services, I could hire a hundred people to do it so that I wouldn't have to do it. But God has called uh, me uh, to do that or to then clean up the restrooms or empty the garbage cans on the grounds of uh, uh, the church grounds. And a doulos will always do it. And all of the leadership in this church are doulos. They will fill any need that we have in a moment's notice. If we have a need in the parking lot, we can grab any of them, and they will uh, take care of the security in the parking lot for the services. If we have a need in cleaning up a spill in the fellowship hall or in the children's ministry or a need for someone to pray with someone, they will do anything that needs to be done in order to take care of God's people. There are no selective servants. There's been a number of times through the years where someone has come uh, along and they like the church for one reason or another, and uh, they decide that it's time to get involved in ministry, uh, but they then inform me that they will only do such and such and they won't do uh, this and that. And usually the such-and-such such that they will do uh, always involves uh, standing in front of people and being noticed by people or having spiritual authority over other people uh, within uh, the, the fellowship. But they don't really feel like they're called uh, to, you know, cleaning up after people and, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I tell them, none of us, it, that serve in this church, leadership, non-leadership, none of us feels that we are too good to fill any need uh, that will serve God's people and to do it in a moment's notice. And that every single person in this church that is in a position of leadership anywhere, every one of them began by vacuuming carpets, and by cleaning uh, restrooms, and by emptying garbage cans. And we've never grown out of that because we are bondservants. Later in verse 24, the apostle wrote, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And when he says that, it's an interesting phrase because he says, I do not count my life dear, and the key phrase is, to myself. That wasn't his attitude about other people. It was his attitude about himself. In other words, I am not too good. I am not too precious or too valuable or too important that God cannot use my life and spend my life in any way that he chooses. And that as my eighth grade math teacher told us on the first day of class, when I say jump, you ask how high on the way up. And when God says jump, I ask how high on the way up. This is not a negotiation. And of course, all of this runs so completely contrary to our self-dominated culture that is also infiltrating in a strong way American Christianity, where we can come to believe that Christian service is all about me. The church exists for me, for my self-actualization, my self-enrichment, my self-advancement, my self-expression. No, it does not. When you reach the highest positions in terms of authority within a church, all that makes you is a slave. That's the highest position you can take. That's the highest attitude 
that can be at the core of anyone within these positions. We are not all of these other things. We are nothings and we are comparative nobodies who would still be throwing our lives away a thousand different ways if God hadn't saved us and then brought us not only into his kingdom but into Christian service to keep us busy so we won't get into trouble and teach us things that we wouldn't otherwise learn. We are not something great in this. This is a privilege for us as Christians, and it is very important for that bar to remain very high in our hearts and in our thinking and in this church and in any church. Christian service is all about loving God and loving others. It is not about me, and it is not about my self-exaltation. Jesus taught in this regard. (laughs) It's almost funny. Luke chapter 17, and he said, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Jesus said, does he think that the servant, because he did these things that were commanded, uh, did he, or rather, did he thank the servant because he did these things that were commanded him? Jesus said, I think not. And then here's the application. And so likewise, When you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. Now think about that for a moment. How's that for slapping down our sense of entitlement and self-importance that is on steroids within the culture, but increasingly so? within the church as well. Jesus declared to the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What? Take up his cross and follow after me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus declared of himself, for I have not come down from for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me he said elsewhere in John 4 my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work Luke chapter 22 Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane father if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then in Mark chapter 10, and whosoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And if I'm not, if I am unwilling to do anything that God tells me to do, then I think that I am more important than Jesus. And if church leadership ceases to be bond slaves of Jesus Christ, if that ceases to be our mindset, then a church will end up being ruled by a bunch of proud, self-important, self-entitled prima donnas. And that's the alternative. Our understanding of ourselves is to be that. God owns us, and he can spend our lives any way that he wants. And I'm thankful that that's the attitude of our leadership here at Calvary Modesto. Now let me close by taking a moment to look at this phrase, uh, serving the Lord, and looking most specifically at the word Lord that's a part of that uh, three-word phrase. And here we notice Paul's motivation for his Christian service was to serve the Lord. The word Lord, the Greek word for Lord there, is the word kurios, 
And when the Jews translated the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures into the New Testament, it's known as the, uh, the uh, Greek Septuagint. They did it in the second and third centuries uh, B.C. When they came to the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, probably the highest and holiest name for God in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, they translated that name for God, Yahweh, they translated it Kyrios. And the, that's the Greek word that Paul uses here for Lord. And in doing so, Paul is communicating his absolute, absolute utmost respect and esteem for God and his uh, utmost allegiance to him. In other words, yes, Paul served people, and he was happy to do it, but the primary motivation of his Christian service was not to serve and to please man, but to serve and to please the Lord God. And this is absolutely vital in Christian service because it's the only motivation that will hold up over the long haul because as much as you and I may love people, Sooner or later, God is going to call us to do something for him that we would never do for another person. In fact, we would never do it for ourselves, even our own self-love, but we would do it out of our love for God. And this motivation for Christian service, this respect for his place as uh, the master in our life, and a love for him that's based upon how good he's been to us, those motivations are infinite motivations in Christian service. They will never fail us. They will take us further in our ministry to others than our love for people, no matter how great our love for people. And this is why we must never, ever get the two great commandments that Jesus taught backwards in our ministries. Jesus taught, was asked, and he taught. A Pharisee came to him, a lawyer, asked him a question saying, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answered the question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. If I have a love for people that is greater than my love for God, then I will become sorely tempted to compromise my relationship with God and to compromise the high standard of God's Word in teaching or in counseling when God's Word begins to require something that will be very hard for people to either hear or to accept or to obey. And this is where so much theological liberalism comes from where leaders within a church put man or they put people first over God. And then they ultimately begin to compromise God's Word in order to accommodate people's feelings and their wrong beliefs, and then it moves on to accommodating their carnality or their rebellion or even their sin and pride. And any time that we cease to truly uh, we do that, then we cease to truly love that person because behind those kind of actions is the very mistaken idea that God's commandments somehow do harm to people and are not an expression of ultimate love toward them, which is not true. The Bible teaches, 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Indeed, they're life-giving. Proverbs 3.17, wisdom's ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. John chapter 10, Jesus speaking, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And the really sad thing about this is that that is that things then get flipped on its head to where people and the culture begin to think that uh, these pastors who refuse to declare God's truth concerning sin or they refuse to declare the truth about salvation and judgment. They refuse to declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come uh, to the Father except by uh, him. They refuse to declare that, there, uh, that if I refuse salvation, there's an eternal judgment involved in that, and that these, then the conclusion becomes, even within the body of Christ, that those who deny these truths because they are unpalatable uh, to people, that these are the truly loving pastors and leaders, and that those who remain faithful to God's Word are unloving, when in reality the exact opposite is true. And this thing is epidemic today. When I declare God's Word and His commandments to someone individually or in this sanctuary, I never have the sense I am doing them one bit of harm. I know I am doing them only good. As hard as the truth might be to listen to and to receive. And what keeps me doing it over the long haul of decades is love, a love for God first, and a love for people right behind it. But that love for people is subservient to my love for God, which then keeps my love for people healthy and well-defined and well-directed. Today I am witnessing what I consider to be another very dangerous trend within American Christianity, and it is that Christianity and Christian churches are becoming more and more man-centered and man-focused as opposed to God-centered and God-focused. The two commandments are being flipped before our very eyes where the pastor and the leadership seem to be more concerned with what people think of them rather than what God thinks of them, more concerned with whether the sermon pleases people than whether it pleases God, more concerned with whether uh, the worship moves people rather than whether it blesses and it pleases God. And then increasingly, this, the whole idea that a church service has to be kind of lights, camera, action. I mean, I'm all for a little bit of that. But today, church now, that's got to be a big, dramatic event. And then to just stop and pull back for a moment and ask ourselves, are we doing that for God is, this, is that for God or is that for people? Is that to please God or is that being done to excite people? Is it designed to bless and honor God or is it about giving people a soulish or an emotional experience rather than a spiritual one? in order to keep them coming back because we no longer really trust in the power of God's Word anymore or the power of the Holy Spirit to cause people to come and have a meaningful encounter with God. And so we surrender to the self-dominated culture and we make the church a sanctified version of the same focus and priorities of the world that life is all about us, it is all about I, me, and my, and the church must be also or I'm not going to come. But there's a consequence to that because Once that happens, then God ultimately gets crowded 
out of even his church. And then like the church at Laodicea, Jesus finds himself on the outside of the church knocking to get in. And the people within the church don't have the foggiest idea that there's something wrong with this picture. And why don't they? It is selfism run amok within the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea has just become a further extension of the selfism of the culture. The people coming to church think it is supremely about them rather than about God, and the leaders have nurtured and accommodated it rather than to correct it. The word Laodicea means the people rule, not God, but the people rule. And that's why Jesus declared it to be lukewarm and that he would spew it out of his mouth because it's such a danger to what churches are intended to be. And one verse uh, in Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea is re uh, revelatory in my mind. In Revelation chapter 317, uh, Jesus said to them, You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. I, I, I. The church has become man-centered. But where does it lead spiritually? Jesus went on to say, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And again, they were so convinced that a soulish experience which is so easy to produce, this and I mean my experience is a truly spiritual one that they could not uh, tell the difference between the two. And the absence of spiritual discernment today to me is frightening. When the desire to please people becomes more important than pleasing God and a leader, it is a great danger spiritually and it leads to all kinds of problems. Paul said to the church at Galatia, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so God help us, leadership especially, but all of us, yes, to love people, but then also to love and to fear God more and to never get those two commandments upside down because that is the only thing that then keeps our love for people healthy and safe and biblically defined. So that concludes our first session of Pastor Paul's um, pastor and Christian leaders conference and we'll pick the rest of it up uh, Lord willing next week the recap is this feel free and here's why some of you might not be comfortable with that but a passage like this is important for me as a, a, a sermon like this in a passage like this every once in a while because we must keep the bar high and, and keep it biblical and uh, otherwise, this, when you're in a church like Calvary Chapel Modesto, who is so dependent upon the person and work of the Holy Spirit, that if he were to lift off of this church, we do not have the natural ability or talent to keep this thing going any longer than three weeks after that event. And knowing that about ourselves in leadership and in all areas of service in this church and in attending this church, it's important for these things to stay in place. So the recap, the importance of our manner of life. Number two, that we are bondservants. We are not too good to do anything that God calls us to do. It is a privilege to serve God. And number three, we love and serve God supremely, and our fellow man, as important as that is, secondarily, but it is God that we're going to one day give an account to and not to people. And somehow that truth keeps us healthy 
and keeps us well-focused. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the, the heart of the Apostle Paul and the clarity of all of it. And it's just good to have a, a North Star in the middle of all of the storms and all the chaos and just something that we can put our eye on, Lord, in the midst of so much shifting and shaking and so much experimentation that is in the wind and is happening and is becoming increasingly dominant. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. I pray and we pray for all of us who are in a position of leadership in this church that you would use today's time to keep that standard high and God-honoring in our lives. We pray that you would do the same in all of our lives, everyone that serves in this ministry and in every capacity, and that this would be the standard in our individual hearts as Christians uh, here, that we might not get sucked in to these things that look so appealing uh, on the outside, but they're built on a foundation that is not stable, and we need a firm and, and stable foundation. Thank you for one in your word and in your son, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you sit, stand here this morning now and are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for. Need prayer for anything else? They'd love to pray with you as well. Sunday night, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying the book of Jeremiah. Each of you are invited, 6 o'clock this evening. Mike, would you close us?